At Holyrood on 18th March 2021, in his final speech as an MSP, Neil Finlay said, More than ever, I believe that socialism is the answer to the biggest questions that we have to deal with. Poverty, climate change, hunger, conflict and exploitation. It is because of free market capitalism that we are here, on the precipice of a disaster for our planet. Those questions can be addressed only by a planned economy, public ownership and international solidarity. Irrespective of our political views, we are all brothers and sisters and we have as much of a duty to feed and educate a child in war-torn Yemen as we do a child in the school next door. But those principles are alien to anyone who believes in capitalism. Welcome to Ordinal Elite with me, John McGovern, and my comrade, Mike, I think I can call you a comrade after that opening, uh, Mike <laughs> Daly. Uh, I'm really chuffed to say that Neil Finlay himself joins us as a guest on today's podcast, so welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks very much, John, great to be here. <laughs> Good man. Uh, so by way of introduction, in case you don't know, we're, we're, we're listening to quite a lot of uh, countries outside Scotland, Neil. So Neil was a Labour List MSP for Lodian from 2011 to, until 2021. Prior to that, he'd been a Labour councillor, a teacher, a bricklayer and a chef. He was brought up in a mining community in West Lothian and the championing of legislation which pardoned Scottish miners convicted during the strike of 1984-85 was one of his proudest achievements. Neil also campaigned on justice for women fitted with mesh implants, on drugs and on mental health policy. He was also one of the few MSPs to try to hold the Scottish Government to account on its COVID-19 policies particularly the deathly policy of discharging hospital inpatients to care homes at the beginning of the pandemic without them being tested for COVID. Neil is also the author of several books, two of which, Socialism and Hope from 2017 and Hope and Despair from last year, are essentially diaries of his time as an MSP and highly readable they are too. So I'm really looking forward to our chat, Neil, where hopefully we can drill down into some of these issues and Neil joins us, Mike, just a few days after yet another political scandal, that being the resignation of the Cabinet Secretary for Health, Michael Matheson, which was a long time coming and was, Mike, I think, in truth, a saga peppered with lies and dishonesty. Do you agree? Well, I think I think I have to agree, John. And I mean, the I, I suppose the thing that that you know, the Michael Matheson saga throws throws up. I mean, what, what we've now learned, we don't know for sure. It's only been leaked. <clears throat> in terms of the Scottish Parliament's report, uh, what's been reported in the news is <clears throat> allegations that he, Mr Matheson, had misled and had uh, twisted the truth. Uh, let's be honest, he had lied uh, to the presiding officer uh, and uh, one can only surmise, is that the reason that he's resigned as health secretary? I suppose the big question is, you know, is he going to cling on uh, as an MSP? I suppose part of the problem that we now have with Holyrood is, you know, uh, there's lots of things we can talk about Holyrood, and indeed Westminster, I think, is quite similar, but at least Westminster has a recall procedure, and we've seen that operate quite a few times Um uh, 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 in terms of MPs being recalled by uh, local uh, uh, constituents. Uh, and of course, we saw that in Scotland for the first time uh, in terms of uh, uh, Hamilton and Rutherglen. Um, now, we don't have that process in the Scottish Parliament. And I think um, there's many things that need to be reformed in the Scottish Parliament. Surely that's got to be one of them. Um, because, I mean, I, I, I guess my sort of opening gambit uh, to, to you, Neil, is, has there ever been less trust in politicians, whether at Holyrood or Westminster? Could I maybe say on Michael Matheson first? It kind of saddens me what what's happened with Michael Matheson because um, I would say out of almost all the government ministers I had to deal with, I, I, I liked dealing with him probably the most. I found him, he came from the right side of the tracks. He understood working class communities. He came from one. When we went to him as Justice Secretary on the Miners' Campaign, when previously Kenny McCaskill wouldn't even meet us, Matheson met us, and he um, uh, he agreed to instigate the independent review that ultimately led to the pardons. So I had a good personal relationship with him, and, uh, um, and, and so I find it sad. However, once he had lied, then he was toast, and... Um, 
and that you know, there's no way back from that. Um, although um, it, it appears that Humza Yusuf thought there was a way, but was a way back from that, and that all they had to do was do what they generally do is bide their time and let it ride over, and people will somehow forget about it. Um, very few people are sacked uh, by successive SNP leaders, and some of them have done really, really bad stuff. I mean, I'm not talking about um, criminal stuff or anything like that. I'm talking about bad policy, bad decision-making. Very few are sacked these days. Uh, and uh, um, so, therefore, when somebody does, it's quite unexpected, and it becomes quite a big issue. Um, are, is there less trust uh, an all-time low in trust? I think politicians, ever since the dawn of um, elections, have been looked at by the public sceptically. Um, I think quite rightly so, uh, justifiably uh, for many reasons, um, and unjustifiably for uh, many others, because I would say the majority of people who are in Parliament um, work hard and genuinely want to do their best by their constituents. Yeah. Um, whether you think they're doing a good job or not is a different matter. But they certainly, um, um, many of my colleagues when I was in Parliament across party were extremely diligent and, and uh, frankly, I would say caring and compassionate people. Um, but um, I understand why the public view of them is at, is at a web because there are so many repeated um, scandals and and you know issues like the iPad issue, um, double jobbing, lobbying, yeah. all of that stuff that just taints the whole body politic rather than show people in a good light. They're always being found out and then having to put in, you know, trying to backtrack with legislation that fixes a problem that they themselves have created. I mean, I suppose, Neil, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking back to, you know, when, when the Parliament sort of reconvened after, you know, 300-odd years in 1999. And, you know, I, I, I was very much involved um, in the Parliament at that time uh, because there was no non-executive bills unit. So I was in demand because there was nothing else. Let's be honest. I'm not saying I was in demand because it was incredibly good. I was in demand because there was, there was a dearth uh, for yeah. MSPs that could do two uh, private members' bills, and of course, I I worked uh, across Labour, SNP, and and then it was the the SSP, and we did things like the abolition of pins and warrant sales, free school meals, and then I worked with other uh, MSPs doing the health board elections bill, the the bill to try and get rid of uh, parking charges in NHS hospitals, and and so on and so forth. <laughs> um, and I suppose I'm just sort of thinking, Neil, and I should disclose I've worked with you over the years on some of your campaigns, which have been great campaigns for local people, not just your constituents, but other people across the whole of Scotland that have been affected by really quite um, egregious injustices. But I, I just get a feeling that, you know, the parliament of, say, 15, 25 years ago is not the parliament that we currently have. I get a feeling, Neil, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, it seemed to be more independently minded in terms of backbench MSPs, you know, that would fight the cause. It, it seemed to be uh, a, a parliament that had people with more life experience. And when I say life experience, I don't mean necessarily in terms of a career, but certainly in terms of, you know, look at your background. You've done a number of different things in your life. Um, there, there were people with all sorts of different career backgrounds. Now we seem to have much more people that leave university. They become a, a researcher for an MSP MP. Next thing you know, they're elected. Next thing you know, they're in cabinet. <laughs> um and I just think, I just think, you know, if you if you look at where we are with the, the current Scottish government, which is SNP and the Greens, it was a marriage of convenience that the former first minister put in place because basically she wanted to be able to have an elected dictatorship. And just coming back to that whole thing about trust, I think it quite incredible that it took the UK COVID inquiry. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the Scottish COVID inquiry is going to do. I have to, have to say, maybe we can talk about that if we've got time. But it took the UK COVID inquiry to actually burst the bubble of what was really going on in Scotland. And by goodness, what was going on was shocking. And the, the secrecy, the duplicity, the uh, evasion of accountability by deleting evidence 
uh, and telling uh, telling lies. And, and, and uh, I mean, the whole. Th I just think when you add all these things together, um, is it is it the case, or am I being unfair? That Holyrood is in a pretty bad place just now. I, I would tend to agree, uh, Mike. And um, I was in Holyrood a couple of weeks ago, and the place felt really flat and pretty uninspiring. And and I don't want it to be that. It should yeah. be the it should be the heartbeat of the you know democratic process. It should be debating yep. big issues and big answers to very serious questions and. And, and, and there should be ideological differences and, you know, it should be all of that sort of cut and thrust and drive and excitement of what, you know, what should be a lively functioning democracy. And it just feels completely the opposite at the moment. And um, I don't particularly look at the early days of the Parliament race, you know, hugely rose-tinted glasses. Um, um, however, I think you're right in a sense in, in, in the, you know, um, when Labour and Liberal ministers went before parliamentary committees, they got a torrid time from their own backbenchers. Oh. Um, they were really put under the cosh. Um, they, you had people on the, you know, the the the, 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 the Labour backbenches like Elaine Smith, like John McCallion, people like that. They, even people like Duncan McNeil, who were very much in a different wing of the party, would hold people to account and ask them very serious questions. And, um, and you had obviously... Uh, in the second parliament, it was a much more diverse parliament in terms of the parties that were represented, the different groups that were represented, and and I think we've lost that considerably. And I think that's a question about the parliamentary, um, both the parliamentary vote, the, the the electoral system, but it's also a question about the way in which parties are run these days. So mm. parties want to um, control everything at the moment. Labour are going through selections for Westminster. They are controlled effectively by one person, the deputy leader in Scotland, who basically decides who goes forward and who doesn't. Uh, uh, you know, it's it, it's almost as um, as blatant as that. There's almost no one from the left who has come through as a candidate, um, and uh, these these selections are very tightly controlled to get the favoured sons and daughters coming through. That's the same across all of the parties. Yeah. Um, and, and don't let anybody pretend otherwise. And what that does squeeze out is that diversity of views and opinions across the party spectrum um, uh, and within parties themselves so that you have a, a really vibrant and, and, and um, uh, vi vibrant parties themselves, but also uh, a vibrant wider democracy. And that's really been squeezed out. Um, some of the things also that need to be done about that in terms of um, the way in which the parliament operates. I mean, you know, there's this sort of mythology that the committees are all powerful and that they're the jewel in the crown of the parliament. I mean, I chaired the health committee. Um, we did some really good work. We held folk like the SFA to account and, you know, organisations like that. Health boards would come in and we'd give them a, a tough time on their annual reports and all that sort of stuff. Um but I sat on other committees that were absolutely tame, timid, toothless hamsters. Um, and really, you know, the, the myth that these are, um, uh, the jewel in the crown just is that a myth. When you compare it at times to the, some of the Westminster committees who give people an absolute, you know, they ragdoll people when they mm -hmm. come through those, uh, committees at times. So um, I, I think there's a real issue around how the parliament operates. I also, I, very interestingly, I was interviewing Andy Burnham uh, at a fringe uh, uh, festival event in Edinburgh over the summer, last summer. And one of the things that he spoke about, his reflections since leaving Westminster, is that the thing that he would do would be remove whipping from the uh, system. Uh, now, you might know I said that if he had won the Labour leadership, but uh, um, I think that that's a really, really um, powerful point, that yes, you elect people in a party, Banner or or as an independent, but if you if you're elected on a party banner, but to absolutely whip people to within an inch of their life that if you deviate on anything, then you're sent to the gulag is just not good for democracy at all. Um, I've been here before. Uh, uh, Neil, do you agree we've kind of been here before with the Labour? You're talking about the control freakery almost of the Labour candidate selections that has kind of re-emerged and. 
you know, it's kind of resonant, is it not, of the kind of Blairite era, the Mandelson kind of era. It's worse. Yeah, well, exactly. What it was, it was, it was really difficult to to get selected or, or to get a nomination in a seat if you didn't subscribe to that type of kind of outlook. And I'd be interested in hearing from you on, uh, you know, what you think about how it's going to transpire with Labour because it does look, by all accounts, that Starmer, you know, the Labour Party is going to win the, the general election this year. And Mike and I have talked about this in the past in this podcast and. I'm kind of I'm kind of going towards the view that, that, that this Labour government it's going to be hard to vote Labour for me as as I say that as someone that's always voted Labour it's, it's going to be really hard uh, for reasons I think you're probably familiar with that that, that I'm not sure what Keir Starmer stands for I don't know really uh, don't understand how he's going to change Britain for the better I know he's saying that he'll build more homes but but that apart if he doesn't deliver Neil if he doesn't uh, you know. Uh, take Scotland with them, if you know what I mean, uh, and and deliver real meaningful policies that can that can help to change lives for the better up here. Do you think we're just going to get a swing back to the to the kind of nationalism of the SNP, and and indeed that might actually uh, place them in say four or five years in a stronger position than, than they've ever been? Well, I think that's a, a very very real prospect if um, if Labour don't get uh, the right together. I mean. I, I, Starmer's a man devoid of any principle or beliefs. Um, you know, he appears to be, you know, he appears to have no guiding philosophy. He doesn't actually have any kind of constituency within the party um, because he's he, he, he played the game during the Corbyn years, hanging in there because he saw the opportunity that was going to come when, you know, eventually when there was another leadership election. You quite, you're quite complimentary about him in, in your... Your last book, you know, at the beginning. Let me tell you why it was complimentary because when I dealt with him as the Brexit spokesperson, uh, and and as I was in Scotland, and so was he Mm -hmm. for the rest of the UK, um, he knew his stuff completely, as you'd expect. Lawyers, I'm speaking amongst lawyers, he was all over his brief, he knew the detail. He, um, you know, we did uh, meetings with think people like the Scotch Whiskey Association, the CBI, with various other groups, and, and he could. Answer any question um, competently, knowledgeably, um, and he. So he was. It was clearly someone who was very capable um, in that regard. And I always what, what came away thinking, yeah, but what does he really believe? Uh, because you know he could deliver a line, but you never knew whether he believed the line or not. And I think that suspicion has really been. Uh, to fruition because from day one he you know pledged all these things to party members that he was going to do when he came in and he's basically rubbished almost all of them and you know last week we saw it with the um, the, the 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 green industrial policy yep. which went from 28 billion a year to 24 billion over five years and you think well you know who's the mathematician somebody's got their sums a bit wrong um, but also, you know, it was just—it's just, it's just an, another indication of the lack of genuine belief or principle, or driving any sort of driving principle behind what he believes in. Now, you know, at the start, you quoted uh, my my last speech in Parliament. These issues remain. We, the world is burning before our very eyes. You know, we have hunger um, growing across the country, poverty and. Uh, um, desperation in communities like the one I'm, I live in, the one I'm sitting in, the street that I'm looking out uh, uh, at the moment, where people are absolutely desperate and, and need some hope and belief that there's going to be some change. And looking at Stammer and, and what he's putting forward, it's devoid of anything that would get you up at um, seven o'clock on polling morning to run out and say, I desperately want to vote for these folk because it just isn't there. And there is, I mean, obviously they've they've got a major um, bounce from people just want rid of the Tories. It's John Major over again. The days are numbered. Get them out, get rid of them, and let's have somebody else get a turn. Uh, So I don't think people are, are positively running out to vote Labour. I think they're desperate to get rid of the Tories. 
And you're right. Should that be uh, five years of delivering no very much, then you know, I think Stephen Flynn is an extremely capable person. He's far more capable, I think, than Hamza Yousaf. Uh, I think he's very capable, he's very articulate, and he's very good in Parliament. If they had, um, depends what happens after the election, but if they had something like that in their head, then I think Labour would be in real trouble in Scotland again. It's a very interesting analysis, Neil, and I think, I mean, I agree with everything you've said. I mean, I, I think back to, say, 97, uh, and back in the days when I was in the Labour Party myself, um, and to be fair, back then, you know, there was a, a very, very strong, powerful policy agenda with a lot of detail that had been set out. And I suppose because Blair and Brown had been able to work on it for so long, um, it was effectively very, very powerful. And they did some incredible things. I mean, you know, we could we can rattle through all of the radical things that, that Labour did in, in 97 onwards. And I, I was always a great fan of... Brown in terms of working tax credits, which I think he got from he got from probably Clinton, didn't he, in the US. But I mean, people talk about policies like that. You know, in my law center office, I would see how that empowered single women, you know, with kids. I mean, it really did. I mean, it was life changing. <clears throat> and we don't where is the life changing things? I mean, I, I just to come back to this, um, and it is interesting because you know, you're talking about We've had 14 years of grim cronyism and corruption from the Tories, 17 years of SNP stagnation. Um, the polls today, this is the latest poll, Labour on a 25% lead at 46%, Tories 21%. Reform, which are taking out the Tories, are on 12%, overtaking the Lib Dems on 11 And you say, well, but what has Labour done to deserve that? Well, what they've done is they've basically been swimming you know, in the ocean uh, and avoiding the waves, effectively. I mean, that's what they've been doing. The document that was published called Let's Get Britain's Future Back by Keir Starmer in January this year, and I have to say, that's not the greatest of titles. It's a bit of a sort of a, you know, it's a bit of a Steve Coogan type. Uh, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Um, you know, let's go back to the future uh, in a DeLorean. And I mean, I have to say, there's some good things in it. There's things in it that I like, but a lot of it is kind of um, very sort of thematic, you know. Mm. Um, a bit ephemeral, you know, uh, the rock of economic stability is one of the missions. So there's mm -hmm. like these five missions. Um, there's things like strong national defence, strong secure borders, trying to outdo, but you'll never outdo, uh, well, the only people who outdo the Tories, I guess, are Nigel Farage and the Reform Party, who are just obscenely despicable and uh, beyond contempt in terms of the... The 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 I mean they they just spew uh, and and stir up hatred against I suppose escape people that they want to scapegoat, but what's interesting is there are some good things. That, I mean, for example, in um, the 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 Labour document is uh, this idea of a, a COVID corruption commissioner um, with powers to go after the people that stole billions of pounds from the public purse. I like the sound of that, right? It's very interesting, Neil. Today, uh, I know that Hamza's off to Qatar on his holidays. Uh, <clears throat> before he left, he, he he gave us a tweet of wisdom, which was his vision for Scotland. And can I quote it to you? And I'm Please quoting do. verbatim. If you uh, must. It's very brief. <laughs> I won't take up much of your time. Uh, so uh, the, the vision from Hamza was um, uh, for a Scotland that's centred around three themes. This is it. Equality opportunity, community. Yeah. Thank you. Right. No, no. you compare that to what Labour's produced in terms of that January document, and actually that's like a, a magnum opus compared to what the SNP are doing in Scotland. So it's interesting your point about Stephen Flynn, um, because I think I think that that is interesting because, you know, if you had some very able person in Holyrood and other able people in, in terms of the SNP, and they do have some people you know, uh, that are not obviously appointed to the cabinet, then then they could perhaps turn their fortunes around. But that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. <laughs> um, so in terms of what does Labour stand for, um, it seems to stand for trying... I, I mean, what I take from all of this, and I don't, I don't know what you think about this, Neil, is trying to just show that they're economically competent 
uh, and the you know but but my my question to you is and this comes back to john's point why are we going to vote for labor is it just because they're not the horrible corrupt wicked tories or are we voting for labor just to basically not do anything particularly much except to be honest well, yeah, well, I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I was, I was an arm, no lover of Tony Blair at any point in his or his career or my life. Have I been a, any fan of him? But he had a vision in 1997, but he also had Gordon Brown by his side, yeah, and, and who was providing a lot of the brains and the heft and and whether you know had a, a a drive to deliver a form of redistribution it was not enough i accept that absolutely but who still has that drive and ambition to eradicate child poverty yeah um keir starmer ain't no blair and he and and rachel reeves ain't no gordon brown that's for sure so therein lies a, a, an issue where the the sort of if you like that kind of I don't know what would you call it, the moral kind of um, big, um, big beast in the background with the sort of um, moral principles of uh, attacking child poverty was lurking around all the time. There's none of that at this stage. I, I don't see that. So that's an issue. Um, and and as we as we go on, you were talking about, you know, are there people in the, the, the SNP who could, you know, provide that kind of um, uh, heft and and, and and challenge Labour. Well, you know, the person they identify as is Kate Forbes, obviously, um, you know, nice enough person. I'm sure she's very bright and, and, and capable, but her vision is not of a social democratic uh, Scotland. She's no. a kind of, she, she would happily sit in a Starmer cabinet uh, politically. You know, you've even got a fag paper between them. Um, so, you know, it's not about, um, if anything, her agenda would be taking the SNP further to the right rather than anywhere near the, uh, near the left. Um, and, and and I think what, you, what we see in Scottish politics at the moment is um, overbearing sort of managerialism rather yeah, than any yeah. ideology. Um and that's a really, uh, I understand people, I think people maybe want dull competence. Um, you know, the so-called excitement of the Boris Johnson times, well, you know, it's not my version of excitement, I have to say. But, you know, I think people saw that and went, well, this is absolutely nuts. Then we had the, uh, you know, the flapping white coats with Liz Truss and her gang, <laughs> and we've just got, Sunak yeah. just now, who's just a bucket of wet blankets or you know flannels. <laughs> he just he's a, he's a, you know a, a yeah. vacuous nothingness. So what do people want? They maybe want just some competence that says, um, let's just try and keep inflation down. If you build a few houses and get you know, and if you do some work on public services, and the country's not going to as much shit as it was before, then we'll take that. But it's bloody uninspiring. It really is bloody uninspiring. And, um, you know, what what hope does that give, particularly for the younger generation who can't get a house, who are paying exorbitant rents, who see every public service failing and are looking at politicians saying, what are you going to do about this? And, and actually the answer is not a lot. Well, it's interesting. Um, I know you're keen to come in, June, but I just wanted to pick you up um, on on what you were just saying there, because I mean, from where I sit in terms of you know my sort of day to day job, I see housing and homelessness as being one of the the, the top issues in Scotland and indeed across the UK. And you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Neil, because you know people, and we're talking about when we say young people, we're talking about people in their thirties and their forties. You know what I mean? I mean. Um, I mean, it's incredible. People people can't afford to to buy a house. There isn't enough social housing. Um, we've not met the targets, and the targets were never enough anyway. <clears throat> we've created this uh, enlarged private rented sector, uh, which is hoovering money 
out of uh, people's pockets, um, not just kind of younger people's pockets, but people that older people too, but people that are trapped, uh, people that are in kind of uns, you, know, uh, you know, jobs that are not secure, the gig economy, part-time work, so on and so forth. We've let people down. We've let people down for the last umpteen years in Scotland and indeed, obviously, under the Tories in the UK. And to be fair to uh, you, you know, Labour in terms of the UK uh, document that I talked about, they have got aspirations about um, housing, but it needs to be done very, very carefully because yeah, if you just... Like, I mean, I, I mean it's, it's, it's small beer compared to yeah. the enormity of the problem. I mean, I look back on my lifetime, when I when I was at the age that I wanted to leave my mum's mum and dad's home, I went down to council, put my name on the council waiting list, yep. and within two years I was allocated a property. Right, I had no disability, I had no harassment, I had no children, I was a single person who was working, and and now not only would I have no prospect of a house. I wouldn't have a prospect of a single point on a waiting list. Yeah. So the the the, the idea of um, social housing for a big sector of those young people is a complete and utter non-starter. So for them, it, it, their alternative is a forty-year mortgage or a eight hundred, a thousand pound, or whatever it is a month private rent or yeah. To stay with their parents until they're probably thirty or in their thirties to save up enough for a deposit. We have failed this generation massively, and I find it incomprehensible that in nineteen forty-five, after the uh, after the carnage of a global war that went on and sucked, you know, enormous amount of money out the global economy. We rebuilt the uh, the country. We nationalised key industries. We built the NHS, and we built a million homes. Now, if we can do that on the back of World War Two, why on earth can we not do it now? And I'll tell you why: because there is zero political will to do it. Yeah. Is that not an indictment, Neil, on uh, Labour generally? And uh, I'm, I'm trying to try to focus a little bit more on Scottish Labour because. Public services, as, as you've highlighted, and, and, and are the worst in, in my adult lifetime. I, I can't remember them ever being as bad. We've, we've education attainment gap, uh, health health waiting lists bigger than ever. Local authorities, my God, what a mess the local authorities in this country are in. And a, and exactly, and accordingly, yeah. the services they provide that we see every single time we leave our house. Uh, and... For me, it's as clear as day that the SNP project, in terms of it being a government project, has failed, and it's failed badly, and it's failed Scotland. And what appetite uh, is there uh, within the, the, the Scottish Labour Party to come up with a radical agenda? It's clear that just they've just been managing decline. I mentioned at the beginning, or, or I don't know if it was before we started recording, but I can't really name a policy in the last 17 years of the SNP that I would say was an, a, a, a clear kind of left or centre socialist policy that was aimed that was aimed at solving a, a social ill that, that would eradicate poverty, for example, or would increase you know life chances of people. And and if that's been going on for as long as I believe it has been, is it not an indictment on Labour in Scotland that 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 they are still they are still trailing the SNP in most polls and just can't seem to get a grip of people's imagination uh, that would help persuade them to vote for for let's face it some the radical change that's needed. Well, I mean, whether we like it or not, ten years on, we still um, we we are still mired in the legacy of the referendum um, because. If you look at public services in Scotland, in every area of our public services, we see a disaster that has unfolded, whether that be in health, whether that be in transport, whether it be in um, education, colleges at the moment are, are, are the next in the line. We've got um, a, a housing crisis, a mental health crisis, a drugs crisis, yep. a social care crisis. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And my kind of long-term view of this is that the the services 
that we're talking about are the glue that holds society together. And whether that's the lunch club for pensioners that's been cut 10 years ago because there was no money then, or the youth club at night, or the swimming pools that are going to shut, or, you know, whatever the next public... I mean, the, you know, the, um, the public buildings sitting empty, boarded up. Whether it, it doesn't matter what these things are. Social workers drowning in caseload, all of that stuff. That's the glue that holds society together being picked apart. And we are beginning to rue the day that we sat and allowed that to happen. And then this year, we're going to have another council tax freeze. It is unbelievable that we're getting to that stage. And uh, I, I, I think it's there's a sickness at, at, at the heart of this. I don't believe there's anyone, I've never believed that there's been anyone in, uh, in the SNP who really understood what local government has the potential to do if it's allowed to do its job. It is the front line in the fight against poverty and inequality. Yep. But what it has yep. been over the last 15 years has been uh, basically a board that's ticked the box and said, right, that's the least impactful cut we can make this year. Oh, and here's the one next year, and here's the one next year, until there's nothing left to cut. Now, I've spoken to chief executives of local government recently who say we're almost at statutory services and nothing else. Hmm. Now, you go back decades and think of local government figures, leaders, were household names. They had ideas and vision about what their, their, their county or their city or their, you know, whatever it would, would uh, whatever they represented would do. We might not have it agreed with them all the time, you know, but they had some big vision about what they were wanting to do and, and the power that local government had to bring about positive change in people's lives. And at the moment, that has been obliterated and there is nothing left. My local authority in West Lothian, Asal, um, uh, uh, during that period, we were named UK Council of the Year. Now, you might say, so what? Who cares? But you only get that if you're providing good public services that the public have confidence in and value for money. Well, there was so much confidence in the services being provided that they've lost about £150 million for their budget. Now, that's madness. That's absolute madness. And uh, I, I really, uh, I think it's the biggest mistake, one of the biggest mistakes that the, 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 the government's made is that repeated and continual undermining the local government and starving it of funds. It has been a disaster. Neil, do you think it's fair comment to say that perhaps in the last decade in Scotland under the former Nicola Sturgeon FM, the, the centralisation of power at Holyrood has has got it's never been it's never been more centralised, and it is interesting that the uh, Labour uh, are talking about decentralising uh, power out to local government and indeed communities, and there's been a lot of talk of that in the past, but it's it's never really happened, um, and it's interesting because you talk about, and I completely agree with you that local government is the key vehicle to uh, really change people's lives in terms of uh, housing, in terms of poverty, in terms of education, in terms of uh, social care, social work, all sorts of things, right? You look at that centralisation, particularly over the last decade, because to be fair, I do think that Alex Salmond ran a much more competent administration. I mean, you were around when he was FM. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly was engaging in some of the legislation that he was putting forward, and I have to say some of it I supported. Um, and again, to be fair to Alipa, uh, I know that um, you know the relatively new party, but again, to be fair to them, they are coming up with certainly much more left of centre uh, policies that are more kind of socialist uh, than 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 probably uh, any other party in in Scotland. But you've talked about when Holyrood, through the Scottish government, centralised powers, they've everything seems to have been a flop. We've got the what. The longest ever A and E waiting lists ever. Cancer treatment uh, targets have never been met. Seven hundred fifty thousand Scots on waiting lists. Our educational uh, performance gap has never been worse. Hopeless litigation. The NDREF gender recognition. The scandal over misleading of Parliament with the Salmond inquiry. 
the the dueling of the A9, which is going to be, I don't know, it's probably <laughs> our grand wins <laughs> will uh, we'll enjoy that, maybe. Um, and the Miss Green emission targets, the Ferguson Ferry scandal, unbelievable. It's probably going to end up 400 million. Um, Drug-related deaths have doubled since 2014. Operation Branch Form, Camper Van, the whole shebang. The National Care Service, which was a bunch of quangos, it was going to cost a billion and a half, which has been parked uh, next to the camper van. Protecting, I mean, you can go on and on and on. But my point mm -hmm. is this. Why, I mean, is it the case that, that power is centralised in Scotland uh, with Scottish government ministers because they're like some sort of magnet? Because they've been around for like 25 years as MSPs. They've been around, if you think about the SNP, in power for 17. They just want more and more power. But every time they get more and more power, it's to the exclusion of local government and it's to the undermining and the underfunding of local government. And so what we start to see is our community centres, our, our public swimming pools, our public golf courses, our sports centres, uh, uh, you know, the whole fabric of community life is just being eviscerated. It's being wiped out. And uh, and that's why I wanted to, if we've got time, to, to get into the Scottish National Investment Bank, yeah. because we just discovered yesterday... Um, the, the Scottish National Investment Bank, which is a bit of a misnomer because it isn't a bank, it's not authorised by the FCA or the PRA. It's effectively a, a chunk of money that the Scottish government have, which they park under this legal entity. And uh, it gave £40 million to a company uh, that David Murray, a former Rangers chap, um, is involved in to build a luxury surf resort on the outskirts of Edinburgh. Now, this must make your blood boil Neil, as somebody from that neck of the woods, because when swimming pools are being closed in local communities in the Lothians and across Scotland, £40 million of our money is being invested in some luxury surfing resort. What's uh, that all about? Well, um, interestingly, um, when this um, development was being proposed, uh, the representative of the Murray Group, I think it was actually David Murray's son, I believe, um, contacted all the Lothian's MSPs. Normally, I wouldn't have been near any of these folk with a barge pole, but I wanted to speak to him because I wanted to look this guy in the eye and find out what he was about. And um, it was very interesting, this, you know, and I started asking questions. You know, this big development was going to happen on the west side of Edinburgh, it was going to be fantastic. It brings so much economic development. And I'm saying, well, many social housing units is going to be in there. And, you know, what community stuff. And and you could see them thinking, you know, well, this isn't the, this is this isn't the stuff I wanted to be discussing here. No, really. No, you know, you're not you're not getting the message, mate, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, so I kept an eye on that um uh, all the way through. Uh, and then obviously, you know, once I left Parliament, I didn't keep too much of an eye on it after that. But they, I was always interested in the Scottish National Investment Bank, and uh, right from the start, that that um, there has been really serious concerns about that. They appointed someone who had been uh, as the chair, I think it is, what well, he was, chair or chief executive, who had been fined by regulators for you know, one of the biggest insider trading cases and all this kind of stuff. The real mm -hmm. questions about what was going on at the establishment of that bank uh, and, um, and and what it was actually going to do was more important. Uh, what was it going to do with the cash it got? Um, it makes me pig sick that they're going to have um, the uh, sons and daughters, no doubt, of um, um, rich mummies and daddies who are buying up huge properties at Murray's uh, Resort uh, in the west of Edinburgh, um, practising their surfing. Whilst, meanwhile, in Leith and elsewhere, um, you know, Wayne's in the flats are unable to even learn how to swim because the council, uh, council cuts have resulted in swimming pools potentially causing and it is just it's emblematic of where we're at yeah that if you are wealthy if you're got um you know middle class interests and a stake in all of that financial economy and and you schmooze in the right circles and all the rest of it you'll be fine you'll be fine 
But I'll tell you what, if you rely on public services uh, for your family and your kids' um, uh, well-being, then you're absolutely uh, in, in shit street. And we see that across the whole uh, the public services. And I think mm. that's desperately, it's um, a desperate place we're in. And also on the National Investment Bank, I saw John Ferguson's story in the Sunday Mail yesterday that they are represented by Charlotte Street Partners, one of the most influential lobbying firms in Scotland, with connections right to the top of this government. And so are Murray, uh, Murray Holden's represented by the same organisation. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And by the way, this is an organisation, Charlotte Street Partners, was struck off by their own industry regulator um, in Scotland, um, or their industry body. And yet they're they are really uh, um, dealing with people at the highest level of government uh, and the way in which they represent their clients and major questions need to be asked about that. Well, I mean, I mean, John, I know you want to come in, but I'm, I'm so, you said you're pig sick, Neil. That's diplomatic the way I, the way I feel, I tell you, because here's the thing, right? And I've been involved in, I am involved in lots of cases in, in, in courts on behalf of local people trying to save, whether it's a yeah. swimming pool, whether it's public libraries, whether it's community centres or, uh, or, or or similar. The Scottish National Investment Bank is a pot of money. It's our money. It's taxpayers, Scottish taxpayers' money. It made a loss of over 20 million last year. Uh, and a lot of that was the circular, Circularity Scotland. A chunk of that was a, a loss. Um, it had an expenditure of almost half a billion pounds in 2023 and it made 10 million. Now, you could have given that money to me, right? And I would have said, let's stick it in a wee bond or a right. deposit uh, for 5% and I'll make you 23 million, right? What is it doing? It is blowing our money on all sorts of nonsense. So I, I think the money that the Scottish National Investment Bank, I would be all for taking it off it and investing it in public libraries, public swimming pools, community centres, and the things that actually will make a difference to the lives of ordinary people up and down Scotland. Yep, yep. I wouldn't disagree one bit. It's just kind of symptomatic, isn't it, of every major investment that the government tries to make. It just it just goes, goes belly up, you know, and I heard a an interview with Hamza Yusuf. I don't think he gives enough interviews. I think this goes back to the accountability point, to be honest. He doesn't seem to give any in-depth interviews. And perhaps the reason for that is when you saw him launching their economic kind of paper, you know, this series of papers on independence that they're, they're, they're kind of putting out piecemeal. And there was one last month launched on the currency and the economy. And the most fundamental supplementary question about what currency he would borrow in and how it would be repaid, he couldn't answer, you know, and it was, I'll get back to you. And he was on, and he was giving an interview. Uh, it's a kind of fluffy, you know, kind of soft interview. And he was asked about uh, productivity in Scotland, you know, and what his plans were to improve it. And I, I kid you not, his answer was that he had met Morgan Stanley, Barclays Bank, uh, I think it was someone other, KPMG, I think it was, in London, uh, the previous day, I think it was, to try to persuade them to invest in the kind of green economy up here. That was that was our first minister's answers to a question about productivity. Nothing to do with skills. Nothing to do with maybe, you know, getting the the country uh, the, the tools that are needed to to, yeah. to build yeah. infrastructure, etc. Uh, I think there's this is kind of goes back to the point. I, I, I can't the, the disappointment that people must feel because the SNP took a chunk of Labour supporters away, you know, and have done in the last ten years, and I really scratch my head at why some of you know, well-intentioned and left the centre, why they can't see through what is going on. It, it, it's a source of great frustration to me. Yeah. But, Neil, uh, I think, Mike, we're kind of coming to, to, to the end, and uh, that's been so insightful, Neil. I really appreciate your your time uh, tonight. Uh, and I would suggest to anyone listening that wants to find out a bit more about Neil, then he's, your, your political diaries are... Uh, they're, they're great. They're, they're so readable, you know. And uh, and thanks very uh, much for, for anyone that wants to understand. Available from it. neilfinleybooks.com. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually my next line, Neil. <laughs> you've, taken, you've taken it from me. Can, can I say, guys? Me. I mean, just to finish, we um, you know we we are 
talking about a pretty grim political outlook, and 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 I, uh, you know, there's there's not any reason why we shouldn't be talking about a grim political outlook. But you know, it, it, it's my kind of catchphrase is that you, if you're a socialist, you've got to be an optimist. Yeah, and I know that's really difficult at this time, but we have to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Because if not, we would as well just packing up and, and <laughs> burying our head, you know, um, uh, jumping, jumping off the fourth road bridge. There has to be something better than this. There must be, because as as we spoke about, right, let's turn full circle back to the very beginning, that the big issues of our lifetime of, you know, homelessness, of um, destitution, the hunger, massive disparity between those at the top and those at the bottom, the climate crisis, the public services crisis, all of these things can only can only be delivered and addressed. Uh, it can only be addressed, sorry, through a planning and socialist outlook. Mm. It can't be delivered any other way. It's capitalism that's got us into the position we're in at the moment. And nationalism, I don't think, is the answer. It's cooperation, it's solidarity, it's internationalism, it's people working across borders, across communities, and across the world to deliver that progressive change. And I just, uh, if anybody could convince me otherwise, I'm prepared to listen to other people's argument, but I just don't see anything other than a planned uh, socialist approach uh, that can get us out of the absolute shit show that we're in. I totally agree, Neil. I think uh, I think there's a huge appetite for change uh, from from people from the grassroots, and I think that that is borne out in Labour's twenty five percent lead. You know, that's people want to change. You know, yeah. and to to if I may quote the uh, the great Bob Dylan, the times they are a changing, and I think yeah. they are, and I think we've yeah. got every opportunity to get the Tories out, and I think every opportunity to shake things up at Holyrood, and let's hope that that that's done. Uh, before the next holiday election, let's hope that that you know that that people, different people, come into play uh, and shake things up and do some good things. Because I think you know once we get the general election this year, um, the writing's on the wall. So thanks so much, as John says, for for no taking the time, Neil. I think that's been really really fascinating insights. Um, and I like you remain optimistic. <laughs> okay, guys, good to speak to you, and uh, all the best. Thanks a lot. Thanks again. Neil.